read the scripture for today. So it's an interesting story. It's a bit of a longer one. And it's in your bulletin there. Starting at verse 1. Sometime later, when King Ahasuerus' rage had cooled down, he remembered Vashti, what she had done and what was decided against her. The king's personal attendants suggested, let a search be made for beautiful young virgins for the king. Let the king appoint commissioners in each province of his kingdom so that they may gather all the beautiful young virgins to the harem at the fortress of Susa. Put them under the supervision of Haggai, the king's eunuch, keeper of the women, and give them the required beauty treatments. Then the young woman who pleases the king will become queen instead of Vashti. This suggestion pleased the king, and he did accordingly. In the fortress of Susa, there was a Jewish man named Mordecai, son of Jar, son of Shemai, son of Kish, a Benjaminite. He had been taken into ex exile from Jerusalem with other captives when King, sorry, when King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon took King Jeconia of Judea into exile. Mordecai was the legal guardian of his cousin Hadassah, that is Esther, because she had no father or mother. The young woman had a beautiful figure and was extremely good-looking. When her father and mother died, Mordecai had adopted her as his own daughter. When the king's command and edict became public knowledge, and when many young women were gathered at the fortress of Susa under Haggai's supervision, Esther was taken to the palace into the supervision of Haggai, keeper of the women. The young woman pleased him and gained his favor so that he accelerated the process of the beauty treatments and the special diet that she received. He assigned seven hand-picked female servants to her from the palace and transferred her and her servants to the harem's best quarters. Esther did not reveal her ethnicity or her family background because Mordecai had ordered her not to make them known. Every day, Mordecai took a walk in front of the harem's courtyard to learn how Esther was doing and to see what was happening to her. During the year before each young woman's turn to go to the king, uh, the harem regulation required her to receive beauty treatments with oil of myrrh for six months and then with perfumes and cosmetics for another six months. When the young woman would go to the king, she was given whatever she requested to take with her from the harem to the palace. She would go in the evening, and in the morning she would have returned to a second harem under the supervision of the king's eunuch, Shashgaz, keeper of the concubines. She never went to the king again, unless he desired her and summoned her by name. Esther was the daughter of Abihail, the uncle of Mordecai, who had adopted her as her own daughter. When her turn came to go to the king, she did not ask for anything except what Haggai, the king's eunuch, keeper of the women, suggested. Esther gained favor in the eyes of everyone who saw her. She was taken to King Ahasuerus in the palace in the tenth month, the month to Beth, in the seventh year of his reign. The king loved Esther more than all the other women. She won more favor and approval from him than did any of the other virgins. He placed the royal crown on her head and made her queen in place of Vashti. The king held a great banquet for all his officials and staff. It was Esther's banquet. He freed his provinces from tax payments and gave gifts worthy of the king's bounty. 
When the virgins were gathered a second time, Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. Esther had not revealed her family background or her ethnicity as Mordecai had directed. She obeyed Mordecai's orders as she has always done. During those days, while Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Bigthan and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the entrance, became infuriated and planned to assassinate the king. When Mordecai learned of the plot, he reported it to Queen Esther, and she told the king on Mordecai's behalf. When the report was investigated and verified, both men were hanged on the gallows. This event was recorded in the historical record in the king's presence. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Matt, for reading, and uh, that was a long passage with a lot of unfamiliar words. You did very well. Appreciate it very much. Um, We are uh, going to spend a a few weeks together in the book of Esther, and just two things before we we start. Uh, One is, uh, we always, if possible, uh, take the opportunity to receive questions at the end of the message, at the end of the sermon here. In Grace Valley, and if you uh, would like to ask a question, but you don't want to stand up or raise your hand in front of everybody, you can text me. My phone number is right there in the bulletin. Uh, you can do that at the end of the of the message. So keep that in mind as you're listening to the message. If there are things in your that pop up, you can uh, you can jot them down. The second thing is. Uh, We're doing four weeks on the book of Esther together, and the book of Esther itself is 10 chapters long, which means that we are not going to be going verse by verse through the book of Esther. We're going to be looking at broad themes in the book of Esther. And if you're not familiar with the story of Esther, I strongly encourage you to take some time over the next month to read through it. And that will help you understand where we're going with the messages, uh, what the point of them is, etc., because you'll have a, a good understanding of the story as a whole. So, for example, this morning we're going to be looking at chapters 1 and 2, but we only read chapter 2. So it would be good for Hey, Jamie, welcome back. Jamie's back, everyone, after nine weeks in England. All right. Sorry about that. Um, so we're going to be looking at this together, and if you, can, if you can know the whole story, that will help. So as I mentioned, new series, four weeks on the book of Esther. Why Esther? Why now? Two good questions. First of all, summertime is, is the time for, you know, the summer blockbuster movie. You know, Spider-Man... Dunkirk, there's another Planet of the Apes coming out over, over uh, the summer. It's the time when you go to those movies that are like grand epic dramas, <clears throat> excuse me, or action films. And Esther is that kind of story. The book of Esther fits summer really, really well because it's a book full of intrigue and conspiracy theories and plots against uh, the king and, and, and all this kind of stuff. And it's an epic story of, of a, a wicked man trying to destroy a people. Uh, and it's a story of pride coming before the fall. There's all kinds of grand themes in the book of Esther. And summertime's a great time to study that kind of thing. So that's one reason. 
But more important reason is that the book of Esther remains remarkably relevant for today's context in which we live. It's, it's quite fascinating. This is a book that was written about 2,500 years ago uh, during the time of ancient Persia, which was a massive empire that has not existed for at least 2,200 years. And of course, you know, there's been a lot of changes in the world in the last 2,000 some odd years, right? Changes in agriculture and technology and medicine and politics, and it goes on and on and on and on. And, and, and it'd be easy for us to look at this book of Esther written so long ago and think to ourselves, what on earth could it possibly have to do with our world today? But you know the old saying, the more things change, the more they seem to stay the same? Well, that is definitely true when we look at the book of Esther and compare it to today's culture. The book of Esther is about a group of people, a religious minority, the Jews, living in a majority culture that does not share their values. Hmm. Does that sound familiar to any of you? We are Christians living as minorities in a culture that does not necessarily share our values either. What, what were the major values believed, uh, uh, held in the time of Esther? Well, power, money, prestige, respect, especially among men. Sound like any culture you know? Sex and beauty and sensuality were upheld as extremely important values for women in that time and, and era. Sound like any culture you know? There are actually a lot of similarities uh, to, uh, between that culture and our culture today. The question is, for us, as a religious minority living in a majority culture uh, that is unlike our own, how do we navigate life in that culture? when it doesn't share our values. That was a <clears throat> an issue then, and that's an issue today. As a Christian, how do you live Christianly in the workplace? Where, for some of you, you have discovered the workplace can be an extremely selfish, cutthroat environment where there is a, a lot of pressure to perform. How do you live that way? How do you live as a single person in a culture of tinder, where all you do is look at brief profiles, which are mostly pictures, and you swipe right or something like that? How do you navigate life as a Christian in a world like that? How do you, uh, how do you live as a parent in a culture that puts tremendous pressure on you to make sure that your child has every opportunity and every advantage and experiences every uh, Everything that, that the, the world has to offer and, and work in, in sports and in music and in cultural experiences, etc. How, how do you live that way? How do you live that kind of lifestyle? That's one of the big questions that the book of Esther helps us try to answer. It doesn't explain how to deal with Tinder. What it does explain is that there are principles for living as a follower of Jesus Christ in a world that is very different from the one that Christ calls you to live as a part of. So that's one major theme, and we'll look at that theme in one of the weeks to come. And there are others as well that we're going to look at. But this morning, we're going to look 
at a different theme. And it's introduced, it's a, it's a significant theme in the book of Esther, and it's introduced in, in uh, the first two chapters. A very simple message for us this morning. I'm going to state the theme, I'm going to give evidence from the text for it, and then we're going to look at three different applications for our lives that this, that this, uh, this theme provides for us. So basically, it's a one-point sermon. That should be easy to follow, right? All right, here we go. What's the theme? The theme, one of the major themes of the book of Exodus, and certainly it comes to the fore in chapters 1 and 2 in the book, or sorry, the book of Esther, is this. God is always present, even when it looks like He's not. God is always present, even when it looks like He's not. In other words, God, the sovereign God who made the universe by the word of His power, sustains that universe. He is actively and intimately involved in upholding that universe and working out His plans for history in that universe, even when you cannot see any evidence of it or think you cannot see any evidence of it. God, in other words, is never, ever, ever absent, and in fact... God often works quietly, non-obviously, even, you could say, subtly in the ordinary happenings of your everyday life. Now, that's a really important lesson. I'm going to explain why it's an important lesson to learn in a couple of minutes. But first, let's look at the evidence for this from our text. Let's just unpack the story so far because we only read chapter 2. I need to catch you up on how we got to where we are in the story of Esther. Xerxes is king of Persia, which made him basically king of the known world at the time. He ruled over an empire that met uh, India in the east, it met Egypt in the west, Egypt and Libya, what is modern Egypt and Libya in the west, it met uh, Arabia to the south, and it included Turkey to the north. So it had a massive, massive area in which uh, Persia ruled over. And he was the absolute ruler of that known world. He had an iron grip on the entire world. Chapter 1 proves that. Because in chapter 1, and I encourage you to go home maybe and read it at some point today, it says that Xerxes had a 180-day party in his capital city. Can you imagine partying for 180 days? He had a 180-day party for his military brass and his bureaucrats and his top civil servants. Now, you can only party like that for 180 days with these people if there is absolute peace in your empire, because that means you're not worried about, you know, the barbarians or the, I don't know, who was out there the bad guys who are going to come in and try to take over your, your empire, you don't have to worry about them. You're just sitting back, kicking back with your buddies and partying hard. And that's what he did. And at the end of that 180-day party, he hold, held a special one-week-long party in which he invited all the inhabitants of the capital city. And, and it was like there are no reservations on this party. You drink as much as you want, you eat as much as you want, you carouse as much as you want. It is a full-blown bacchanalia, okay? 
During that party, he and his inner circle, drinking pretty heavily, and men and women didn't party together back then. They partied in separate spaces, and so he's with his buddies, and he's drinking and partying and having a good time with them, and of course he gets drunk, and like many men, most men, he becomes foolish and stupid when he has too much to drink, and he says to one of his servants, he says, go get my wife, Ash, uh, Vashti. She's partying maybe on the other side of the compound with the women. Bring her in here. And the reason he wants her brought in there is because Vashti is a knockout. She's gorgeous, and he wants to show his wife off to all his men. He wants to give them the opportunity to ogle her, frankly. Well, surprise, surprise, Vashti says, I'm not coming. Smart woman, you think, right? Well, yes and no. She stands up for herself and she says, I'm not letting your buddies look me over like that. Forget it. But as a result, she has broken the rule of the empire, emperor of the known world at the time, and she is banished from the kingdom. And because she's banished from the kingdom, a new queen is needed. Well, what do you do? Well, of course, you hold a Miss Universe pageant. And that's essentially what he did. He sent the call out for all the beautiful young virgins throughout the empire to be brought to the capital city so that he could look them over and choose his next queen. Now, they didn't have a choice. These are girls ages around 15 to 20 years old, single virgins, and they were brought there and they didn't have a choice. And they spent a year in training, beautification training, I guess, beauty training, all for one night with the king. And everything, their entire future depended on that one night with the king because there were four basic possibilities that would come out of it. One is you'd have your one night with the king and he was not interested in you and off he would send you to the, to the concubines and he would never call on you again. And you led a life where you had no relationships with a man or, or anything. You never had any children. You basically lived in a compound until you died. It was horrible. Second option was he liked you a little bit and he sent you into the compound. Uh, but every now and then, occasionally, he would call you back to spend some time with him. But there was absolutely no relationship, of course. It was just purely sexual. Third option was that he liked you a fair bit and he made you one of his wives, which meant that you spent time at the court and potentially you had children for him that would uh, live lives in the court. And so that was a little bit better. And then, of course, the big one, number four, the ultimate was he made you queen. queen. He made you his consort. Okay, those were the four options. The story introduces us to a woman by the name of Esther. Esther is a Jewish orphan girl who's being raised by her cousin Mordecai. He has told her to hide her Jewishness and don't admit that she's ethnically or religiously Jewish, although there's some question over how religiously Jewish she was, especially given how she behaves, um, but certainly hide her ethnic Jewishness. But the long and the short of it is, this is a young woman who is drop-dead gorgeous. And she's smart. She's smart. Because when she spends her time that year in beautification training, she listens very, very carefully to Haggai, who is the, uh, the um, 
the right-hand man to the king in this area, and he keeps saying, well, this is what the king likes, and this is what the king expects, and, and she listens very carefully, and she only does whatever he tells her, so that when she goes into the king, he blows the king away, she blows the king away, and he says, you're the one, you're going to be my queen. Now, that's the story so far, and it's, it's quite a remarkable story, isn't it? It's kind of a dare I say, a rags-to-riches story. This woman is a a Jewish orphan girl who goes from next to nothing in one night, and she becomes the queen of the empire, the queen of the most power, the, the, the consort of the most powerful man in the world. But here's what's strange. This is in the Bible. And There's lots of strange stories in the Bible, but what makes this one strange for being in the Bible is the fact that nowhere in this story is there a single mention of God. Nowhere. And maybe you're thinking, well, you you know, we're in chapter two, there's 10 chapters to the story, maybe if we keep reading, God shows up. Nope. Nothing. Nada. There's no prayer There's no visions, there's no prophecies, there's no miracles, there's virtually no religion in this story at all. God seems entirely absent. And what makes it especially strange is when you do start reading the rest of the story, and I'm not giving it totally away, but you discover that the Jews themselves are in physical danger that there is a member of, and I won't give it away who it is yet or anything, but there's a member of Xerxes' uh, uh, bureaucracy, a member of his government, who has a hate on for Mordecai, and as a result, a hate on for all the Jews, and he wants to wipe them out. He wants to commit genocide. Now, if you know your Bibles well, there's something familiar about that, because there was a great leader many, many centuries before who seemed to want to wipe out the Jews or at least limit their growth and their strength, and that guy's name was Pharaoh of Egypt. And what happened in that story? The people cried out to God, and he heard their plight, and he remembered his covenant with Abraham that he was going to keep these people and and protect them, and through them he was going to incubate the king of the universe who was going to come to save his people from their sins. And so what does he do? He, He... attacks Pharaoh on behalf of his people with plagues, and he rescues them with a mighty outstretched arm, Scripture says. He takes them out of Egypt, and they, he parts the Red Sea, and they walk through it, and then Pharaoh tries to follow, and of course the Red Sea closes again, and the horse and rider fall into the sea, and God, with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, through a miraculous work, saves his people, right? God is present And he's oh so obviously present to help his people in time of need. But here, God doesn't seem to be present. It's like he's nowhere to be found. And certainly, 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 he's silent. Some scholars have said it's almost like the author goes out of his way to avoid mentioning God anywhere in this story. Now, what gives? Why is that? Is it just like, did the author, he got, you know, he, and they all lived happily ever after, the end, whew, this is a great story, and then he flipped through it and he went, oh, oh, big, epic fail, I was supposed to talk about God and I forgot. Of course not. We believe that this is not just 
a story, but this is the Word of God. There is nothing in here that isn't in here on purpose. There's a reason for it, and, and there's even a reason for the absence of things. As you continue to read the story, and as you read it very, very carefully, what you seem to discover is, is there's a lot of coincidences in the book of Esther. Tons of them, one after the other. All these small little things that happen in order to make sure the story works. So, for example, just in what we've read and what we've learned about this morning, the king gets really, really drunk. If he hadn't gotten really, really drunk, would he have really made that stupid idea, that, that uh, suggestion of bringing Vashti in to, to be looked at by his friends? Probably not. And if he hadn't done that, Vashti wouldn't have said no, and then there wouldn't have been an opening for the queen. What if Esther was not drop-dead gorgeous? Good thing she is, or she wouldn't have been queen. Or how about this? We read about this in our, in our text. Mordecai, Esther were part of Jewish families that had been exiled from Palestine to Babylon. King Nebuchadnezzar had taken them to Babylon. Persia conquers Babylon, and they... That King Cyrus, who conquered Nebuchadnezzar and made Persia the, 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 the empire of the day, allowed the Jews to return to Jerusalem. But apparently, Mordecai and Esther's family didn't go. They probably should have, but they didn't. And it's a good thing they didn't, because otherwise Esther wouldn't have been there to be able to become queen, to be able to help save God's people in a time of need. And later on, of course, you just read at the end of this story, that Mordecai, he's walking by the gates and two of, uh, two of the king's kind of closest advisors, these were eunuchs, so the king's, I won't get into the details why so much, but the king's always like to have eunuchs closest to them because they could only trust eunuchs with the women in their lives, if you understand what I mean. And these eunuchs were very close to the king and Mordecai walks by and he uncovers a plot against them. And so Mordecai decides to tell the queen through queen, or king through Queen Esther about this plot, and that's all well and good. The plot's avoided. But later on in the story, this one guy who has a hate on for Mordecai is planning to have Mordecai killed and execute his genocide of the Jewish people. But the night before he's going to do that, the king is staying up late. He can't sleep. And he says, I need, to, I need a way to fall asleep. Oh, I got an idea. I'll read the history of the Persian Empire because I guess that's really boring and it puts you to sleep. So he calls for the books and the books are brought in and he starts reading the history of the Persian Empire and he reads the story of Mordecai avoiding this assassination attempt and saving, the, saving his neck because of it. And he says to his advisor, hey, have we uh, honored Mordecai for that yet? And the guy said, no, we haven't done it. He goes, that's, we should do that tomorrow. Oh, okay, we'll do that tomorrow. And the plot to kill all the Jews is torpedoed by this seemingly random event. Now maybe you're saying, well, yeah, they're all coincidences to tell a good story. Drunken king, can't sleep, Esther's beautiful. It's all part of the plan. And the answer is, yeah, that's the point. See, Christian friends, listen, we have a tendency to think that the silence of God equals the absence of God. 
we have a tendency to believe that the hiddenness of God must mean the abandonment of God. We cry out, where are you? And non-Christian friends, as you look back on your life and you think of all these funny coincidences that have put you in different places at different times, and you think to yourself, I don't know how this happens. I'm living in a random universe with no rhyme or reason to it, but somehow I end up here like this. Wow, isn't that amazing? And the book of Esther is telling you, no, it's not. Well, okay, it is. (laughs) It's amazing, but it's not a coincidence. You being here, whether you're a believer or not, and whether you believe what I'm saying or not, is not a coincidence. There are no coincidences. See, the book of Esther teaches us that that the absence of God that you may believe in your heart or, or experience in your life at times because of your circumstances is never true. God is always present. God is always working. Our problem is, is that we don't see it. Our eyes aren't open to see it because, frankly, whether you're spiritual or not, whether you're a believer or not, you live the vast majority of your life in one dimension. Don't you admit that? You're just living on one dimension. There's a whole spiritual world behind the stuff that you see, but you're not seeing it because you're not aware of it. You're not cognizant of it. Look, the seminal event in the history of the universe happened 2,000 years ago when a man named Jesus, who claimed to be the Son of God, was arrested and tried and hung on a cross. And all his followers who had followed him for three years and who had thought, here's the one, he's finally the one, we've got the one, look at what he does, the miracles he performs, look at how he teaches and the wisdom that just blows our minds, this has got to be the one. They stood there and they looked at this cross and they thought to themselves, my dreams are shattered, my hopes are all gone. If God ever seemed absence, now is that moment. Even the sun was blocked, friends. It was like God had abandoned not just Jesus or his people, but he had abandoned the entire creation. And yet, what were they witnessing? They were witnessing God dealing definitively with sin, with our sin, with our rebellion against him. And it looked to everybody, like God was not there, but he was never more present. Now there's three, that's the evidence. I want to give you three applications. What are these, what does it mean to say God is never absent, God is always present? How, how can that be of any use to you? Well, first of all, my prayer is it would be of tremendous comfort to you when you suffer. I admit I have not suffered a ton in my life. I've had moments of suffering. I've had moments of deep suffering. Some of you are far more familiar with this than I am. But something you do know is that very often the pain of our suffering clouds our vision. It It makes it hard for us to see much of anything else. 
because the, the lens through which we are looking at everything in life and everything in the world is the lens of our suffering, of that circumstance, of that issue, of that problem. And if you've ever suffered, perhaps it's, it's over a health concern, maybe you're waiting for the doctor's news, or if you've suffered over the precariousness of your employment or your business, or you've suffered over a relationship that you think might go south, or you're suffering over seeing a child that, that is walking away from God and you plead with Him for, to... to draw them back to himself. Everything that, that you try to do, everything you try to, to think about that doesn't have anything to do with that specific suffering that you're dealing with, it's clouded by the suffering. It, it becomes an obsession. It takes over. It rules you. And you may think to yourself, like, God, where are you? I'm suffering here. Where are you? And you know, you don't have to be, this isn't just a problem for your so-called weak Christians. King David, checkered history, of course, but nobody would question whether David loved God. He wrote Psalm 13, and the opening line to the psalm is, How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? And the gospel is this. Because Jesus Christ, God's Son, was abandoned to hell for your sake and my sake and punished in our place for your sake and for my sake, you can be assured that you are never abandoned. Never, 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 never. The Apostle Paul in Romans 8, he pens one of the most beautiful passages in all of Scripture, probably familiar to very many of you who have suffered, when he says, he says this, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword, as it is written, for your sake we are being killed in the, all day long, we are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered? No. No, Paul says, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, neither angels nor rulers nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Any of you guys familiar with the poem Footprints? I ask when I, I'm, I want to see a hand or a nod. Okay, thank you. <laughs> well, because otherwise then why would I bring it up? Nobody's heard of it. I mean, it's not Shakespeare, right? Okay, it's not the greatest poetry in the world, I admit. But the sentiment, the sentiment is beautiful and the, and the point of it is important. Listen to, what, listen to what it says in Footprints. One night, I dreamed a dream 
As I was walking along the beach with my Lord, across the dark sky flashed scenes from my life. For each scene, scene, I noticed two sets of footprints in the sand, one belonging to me and one to my Lord. After the last scene of my life flashed before me, I looked back at the footprints in the sand, and I noticed that at many times along the path of my life, especially at the very lowest and saddest times, there was only one set of footprints. This really troubled me, so I asked the Lord about it. Lord, you said once I decided to follow you, you'd walk with me all the way. But I noticed that during the saddest and most troublesome times of my life, there was only one set of footprints. I don't understand why. When I needed you the most, you would leave me. He whispered, my precious child, I love you. I will never leave you, never, ever will I leave you during your trials and testings. When you saw only one set of footprints, it was then that I carried you. The gospel promise is that there is nothing that can separate you from the love of God. So if you're in that moment right now, if you're in that, that pit right now and you are crying out, how long, O Lord? Are you working, O Lord? Is there, are you doing something, Lord? The answer resoundingly from Scripture is, I am always at work. And I have guaranteed that. I have proven that. I have made that certain and sure by the cross of my son whom I slaughtered in your place. If you ever wonder if I am never absent, if you ever wonder that I could actually walk away from you and my commitment to you, look at the cross and be assured. That's the first one. Second one. I hope this idea that God is never absent will be an encouragement to your development. What do I mean by that? Okay, look, most of our lives, we just talked about suffering and the dramatic moments, but let's face it, I hope and pray that the truth for most of you is that your life is not lurching from one crisis to another. Crises are big moments that hit, and then the rest of life is really just kind of humdrum and ordinary and mundane, right? Get up eat, work, come home, eat, sleep, get up the next day and do it all over again, right? Not super exciting, is it? So life is more long stretches of ordinary humdrum punctuated by crises, by big things. We plod, okay? And we live in a, in a day and an age where people are craving experience, Big experience here, big experience there, one after the other, right? How many parents are feeling the pain of having their kids home from summer for summer right now, right? And you just hear, I'm bored, I'm bored, I'm bored, like a mantra. Because there's the expectation of there's got to be stuff happening in my life all the time. And, and even in your spiritual life. You do your devotions, and frankly, you still feel dry. You say your prayers, and sometimes, frankly, you still feel dry. You walk in obedience to God because you do love Him, but you still still feel dry. You may feel distant, and you wonder, God, are you interested in my life? Are you doing anything here? But the truth is, friends, you are actually mostly the product of the ordinary. 
and of your ordinary life. Every day, God is using the regular rhythms of your boring everyday life to work out His plan in you and for you. You know what sanctification is? It's becoming more like Jesus. It's, it's putting to death our sinful natures and, and raising up our, our, our Christ-like nature. And every time, parents, that you are choosing patience with your child who is irritating you rather than outburst, God is sanctifying you. Kids who are working for the summer now, you're getting up, that alarm clock goes at quarter after 6, 6.30 or whatever, you're like, bam, get up, go to work. Every time you get up and you go to work and you are just faithful at your job, God is shaping you. He's raising you up into men, of, men and women of integrity and who are dependable. Spouses, every time you choose to overlook an offense from your spouse and love them rather than complain about them, God is using that to shape you. He is always present in the daily grind of your living. And then thirdly, I don't know, what did I put here? About your life experiences. I just could not come up with a phrase that works. So now I'm working with the significance of your life. Maybe the point is better than the summary. I hope so. If God is always present and he is always working on a plan in your life and a plan for the cosmos, this is what that means for your specific little life. It means that nothing about your life is trivial. Nothing about your life is trivial. Look, most of us, we lead pretty unremarkable lives, right? We're not inventing the next greatest app or finding a cure for a disease or, or breaking some sporting record or building some new multi-hundred million dollar company or something and people are like, whoa, they're amazing and they're famous. We're just regular people. We're boring, right? We're, bo we're boring. I see your Facebook. No. Um, <laughs> And you, you may think to yourself, like, what, what impact am I having? What does it matter? Like, what does my life matter? You have no, no idea of the significance of your life. Esther was just some good-looking orphan living in this big, massive empire. She didn't know nothing from nothing. And God used her profoundly and mightily. And you know what? You may not be raised up like Esther was. You may remain sort of insignificant in the eyes of the world, but that doesn't mean you're insignificant because God is at work in and through all of us, creating a legacy, putting together a tapestry of, of His plan to redeem the cosmos of which you are an integral part, whether you believe it or not. If He's ever present, it's true. Peter Kreeft, some of you have heard of, he's a philosopher. He tells this great story to get this point across. He talks about, do you know the story of Joseph and Potiphar's wife? Joseph was a servant in Potiphar's household. Potiphar's wife finds him kind of attractive. She hits on him, and he, like, freaks out, and he turns and runs away, but he leaves his robe behind. And she uses that robe as evidence against him in order to put him in jail and make his life miserable, etc. But anyhow, this is how Peter Kreef writes it. He says, if one Egyptian tailor hadn't cheated on the threads of Joseph's mantle, Potiphar's wife would never have been able to tear it. 
presented as evidence to Potiphar that Joseph attacked her, gotten him thrown in prison, and let him be in a position to interpret Pharaoh's dream, with his con- win his confidence, advise him to store seven years of grain, save his family and the 70 original Jews from whom Jesus came. We owe our salvation to a cheap Egyptian tailor. The point is, your life matters. Everything matters. When you're 50 and you're looking back on your life and you're wondering, what have I done? Remember, your life matters. What you have done, even if it's just been a faithful employee for the same company for 30 years. It's huge. I have a pastor friend who he and I are beginning some accountability stuff. And we were just talking the other day about the number of pastors we've heard of who have had a major moral failure and have lost their, their ministries as a result and done tremendous damage in their communities as a result. And we were both saying, you know, there was a time where building a big church would have been like really awesome, like ambitious. You want to do all kinds of amazing stuff. Now we're both like, I just want to get to the end and have been faithful. I just want to get to the end and have you people say, you know what, he was a good husband and a good father and he loved us. Maybe you're 70 and you're retired and you're like, what am I supposed to do now? My body doesn't hardly work anymore. I hope it still works at 70, but who knows? What use has God got for me now? The promise of Scripture is that everything matters. The world says be famous. God says be faithful because I am at work. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for your faithfulness to us. Thank you for what you have done in and through Jesus Christ to make us your children and to make our lives meaningful. Thank you that even when it looks like you are hard to find, you are ever-present. Thank you. We don't deserve it, but we receive it with deep gratitude. In Jesus' name, amen.